Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, yesterday the light from the Port Hills flames could be seen from the central city. It is looking like a different story this morning, though. At least 80 firefighters, 27 trucks, 14 helicopters and two planes were involved in battling the 650 hectare blaze yesterday. Overnight crews have been working to dampen hot spots and to strengthen the fire breaks. To give us the latest this morning, our reporter Charlotte Cook is at the Cordon on Worsley's Road. Uh, kia ora, good morning, Charlotte, how is it looking there uh, this morning compared with the same time yesterday? Oh, goodness me, it is like a completely different place. So yesterday as I was driving out towards the Port Hills at about 5 o'clock in the morning, the hills were absolutely lit up by this line of flames and fire that you could see smouldering away. And this morning driving out the exact same way, the hills were dark. All I could see was the light from the power pylons and... uh, little flickerings of fire and emergency light in some of the houses around the area were the only things lighting up the sky. Sorry sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, I suppose the message, though, is not to be um, complacent about this. No. So the sun is coming up now, and I'm able to see behind the the first part of the hill, and there's a gully that um, I could see from a different part of the cordon yesterday, which is where we were watching the fire stream down the side of the hill into where the adventure park is. And so now that's obscured from view, but I can see smoke smouldering in the background of that area. So there's certainly still some fire action. It's just not as dramatic as it was the day before. Um, But certainly crews are here in, in huge numbers preparing to go out there again today. So this is ahead of the well, the switch from the overnight crews. Uh, are we looking at helicopters, etc. Again, or is it just ground crew? No, so it's, again, it's a, it's it's a completely different start to the day than it was yesterday. There is a large number of uh, fire crews here getting ready, getting their morning briefings, setting out, and their teams to go into their various zones. But no sign of helicopters, no sign of aircraft. Yesterday, we were already by this time seeing huge amounts of water being dropped on the very active fire. So um, you'd assume that things are in a different position than they were yesterday. And condition-wise, how's the weather feeling? It's actually a very chilly morning down here in Christchurch and expected to not reach the same heights of of warmth, only 21 degrees, which Wellington would say is, is, is hot, but for Christchurch, when it's getting up to around 30 most days, the last little while, this is significantly cooler, although I believe that the temperature is not expected to stay this way for long and will climb back up to the late 20s over the coming days. Again, with some changing winds in and out of there, which will no doubt play some havoc on getting this fire, which is not yet contained to our knowledge under control. Just finally, Charlotte, um, there seems to be a, a sort of a different feeling as well from residents there about how this has all been handled. Is this the, that the vibe you're getting from talking to people? Yeah, definitely. People are, are very pleased with the action and the support that they've been getting from fire and emergency services. Um, also, I think it's it's over, or not over, but it's, it's calming down a lot quicker than they were expecting or what happened last time and, and looking up at the hills today a couple of um, locals I've spoken to sort of felt some relief from seeing such a change in the way that the fire is 
is moving and um, just to not have it in your face and be able to see it from the city must be quite quite a, a relief to some parts. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thank you very much for the update. That was Charlotte Cook uh, reporting there from the Cordon on Worsley's Road. Scientists are hoping a satellite used to track uh, used to track emissions will give them new data they've never been able to get on the ground. The Methane Sat project, led by the US Environmental Defence Fund, will track methane emissions around the world. New Zealand will lead the initiative's agricultural study gathering data on emissions from agriculture. The satellite is set to launch in the coming weeks. Dr Sarah Mikhailov-Fletcher is NIWA's uh, science leader for the agricultural programme. She joins me now. Kia ora, good morning. Oh, Kiara, it's a real pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you. So I'm imagining that for many countries, or most countries perhaps, this is about methane emissions, what, leaking from oil and gas fields and that sort of thing, rather than agriculture. Well, globally, the the biggest source of human-caused methane emissions is agriculture, actually. But there's been a lot of focus on oil and gas because the solutions for oil and gas are very straightforward. Often, methane emissions from oil and gas are happening by accident, from accidental leaks. So if you tell someone that the leak is happening, then they can go and go and fix it. And it's sort of a solution that has very few users, which losers, which um, we in New Zealand know is not necessarily. It's just a more complicated story for agriculture. But if you think about what the global emissions that human beings can control are for methane, you know, agriculture is the biggest one. Absolutely. So I guess what I'm getting at, can you tell exactly how much methane is coming from New Zealand or can you break it down to regions? How specific can you get from this satellite data? What's the hope? Well, the spatial resolution of the satellite will be 100 metres by 400 metres over targets that are about 200 kilometers wide. So we can cover most of New Zealand's agriculture with about four different targets and scan it at that very high spatial resolution. Now, we'll probably be averaging that up to larger spatial areas to get the kind of precision we need to do agriculture. So that's the other big difference between doing fossil emissions and agriculture is if you've got a big fossil emissions leak, you get this um, very high methane concentrations over the the sort the source and then you can you make get these very clear plumes in the atmosphere of that methane blowing away from the source whereas agriculture is much more diffuse especially the way we do it in New Zealand you know mostly cows in the field pastoral agriculture and so we'll be averaging over larger areas to get the kind of precision that we need to be able to mm. do those smaller uh, more diffuse emissions but would you uh, target areas that are high concentration say in dairy Yes. So, I mean, the targets are really big. So 200 by 200 kilometers, you can cover most of New Zealand with about four targets or most of New Zealand's big agricultural areas. And those more concentrated ones will be the easier ones for us to be able to see. And will you be, um, a- will you be able to sort of cross-reference the emissions that you get via the satellite versus, say, what is measured on the ground to enable, I guess, farmers and, uh, I guess, the government to to work out how accurate our emissions measuring is? 
Yeah, that's that's a huge aspect of this program. So we're going to measure methane emissions in a number of different ways in these locations, both to deliver better information to New Zealand, but also because in a way, New Zealand's really the test case for this global capability. Um, you know, MethaneSat's not being launched just to look at New Zealand. It's really the perfect test case because we have lots of capability for doing on-the-ground measurements of these emissions and a really strong history of greenhouse gas research agricultural research. And the work we do here will not only give New Zealanders more detailed information, but it'll also give confidence to um, other methane sat targets that will be collected worldwide in places where they would never have that kind of data. Now, I'm not an expert in this, but I know there's been a huge emphasis in recent years in New Zealand on split gases when it comes to trying to measure methane and the gas emissions from farming. I mean, do you have any capability of of sort of that working out the difference between the two, or is that not on the on, on the radar, so to speak? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's a couple of different ways you can think about that question. You can think about a policy question about um, whether you think about agriculture differently. That's that's not my um, my role as a scientist. My role is to tell you where the methane is and what's causing it. But it's 100% important that if we're doing this work, that we are um, thinking hard about any other emissions that we could be observing with the satellite, so that we're not attributing those to the New Zealand farmer unfairly. And so we are partnering through this project. We have a couple of partner organizations, Manaki Fenoa um, Landcare Research and University of Waikato, who spend a lot of uh, whose expertise is really around um, point source uh, local measurements of these different types of emissions. So they're doing they've done and are doing a number of field studies to be able to characterize emissions from other things that we might observe, like wetlands and soils, so that um, so that we can be sure that we're really separating the agriculture from those other things. So assuming this all goes to plan and the satellite uh, is launched successfully, when would you expect to start seeing some results coming through that could be meaningfully used? Oh, yeah. So, the I mean, after the satellite launches, first there's a commissioning period, which really means sort of all of the work they need to do to turn the satellite on. Um, we're expecting to see the first data um, hopefully in May, but um, we're not really counting on it until sort of June, July. But still, that's incredibly exciting. This is something we've done a huge amount. Of, it's been a huge effort to lay all of the groundwork for this. So we're really looking forward to when those first data come to us in later in the um, fall and winter. Great stuff. It is exciting. Thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Mikhailov-Fletcher there, and he was science leader for the agricultural program, a satellite that's going to measure uh, methane. That could be very helpful when you think about New Zealand's uh, emissions profile. Fire crews have been fighting the huge fire on Christchurch's Port Hills for a second night. One home has been destroyed in the blaze and 80 houses remain evacuated. This morning, 28 crews will be supported by 15 helicopters and two aircraft laying fire retardant. Yesterday, people in Hoonhay Valley Road and Early Valley Road were allowed home later on in the afternoon. Others on Worsley Road, well, they are still waiting and hoping that it will be their turn soon. Neverchild reports. This Worsley Road resident first got wind of the fire on Wednesday afternoon when a helicopter flew over his house. Turn around, one helicopter, literally 30 seconds later it's a second helicopter, 
I'm like, oh, and then I turned the soldering iron off because I was doing some wiring in my truck. <laughs> and then walked up, up the drive and walked up the hill. It's all go. <laughs> Smoke everywhere. Bit overwhelmed. He started loading up belongings into his truck and preparing to leave, knowing all too well what the flames are capable of. His family's home was being built when the 2017 fire tore through. It just survived, unlike a sailboat and some stored wood. Luckily, Dad's really onto it with the scrub cutting. We've got lots of green grass in front of our place and lots of natives. Because in the last five, seven years ago, the fire came across the bottom of a section, but it didn't come up to the place. He's spent two nights away from home now and is hoping he'll be allowed back in the next few days. The news is much better for these people from nearby Hoonhae Valley. They too had to flee their house in 2017 when the fire came too close for comfort. It certainly brings back deja vu, but it also brings back experience too. Mm. So you have a picture of what to expect, whereas the first time through you don't. They've improved some procedures immensely. We're able to go back there tonight, which is amazing. Wasn't it? No, last time it was two weeks, so I was very surprised, but delighted. People in Early Valley Road have also got the all clear, but this woman is staying away for a bit longer. It is it's interesting how much the noise of helicopters and things affect you when you go through that again. It does bring back, yeah, it's quite a loud thing, and our poor cats were terrified when we came home to feed them. A local vet has stepped in to help those who couldn't take their pets with them, but didn't want to leave them behind. Joanna Smith says her practice is currently caring for 20 cats and one dog recovering from surgery, much to their owner's relief. Awesome that we could be there to help them too. And yeah, everybody's been keen to help as well, so yeah, it's nice seeing my teams all getting together and helping each other out and supporting each other in the community. Everyone says the firefighter and emergency response so far is significantly better than seven years ago. This woman says it's helped put them at ease. Just this time of year, once you see all the, the dry, long grass, it's always in the back of your mind, yeah. But no, I haven't lived in fear or anything like that. We, we're quite happy and we feel reasonably good where we are because of what we survived last time, I suppose. Those waking in an unfamiliar bed this morning will be hoping today they get to go home. Neva Chittick with that report. A man was fatally shot by police yesterday afternoon after fleeing a police stop and then threatening a parent and a child with a firearm. Police say they stopped the man just after midday yesterday on Ulster Street in Hamilton. The driver fled. It was later uh, crashed. He later crashed in the Matamata Peacore area. That's more than 50 kilometres away, and was shot by police after threatening a parent and their child. The Independent Police Conduct Authority will be notified, and a critical incident investigation is already underway. Our reporter Maya Ingo has more on this and joins us now. Kia ora, Maya. What exactly have police told us about what happened yesterday? Well, Ingrid, they attempted to stop the driver at around lunchtime yesterday as after they identified the man as a person of interest. The driver presented a firearm and drove away, driving erratically and at high speed, police say. He then took a stranger's vehicle and kept fleeing. Police tried to stop him using road spikes, but it didn't work. Eventually, he crashed on a rural road and fled on foot to a nearby house. When police arrived, they found a parent and a child being threatened by the armed officer. Police shot him and he was critically injured. They tried to give him medical attention, but he died shortly after. Okay, so a number of bystanders involved here then as well. Was anyone else hurt? 
Police say no one else was injured, um, but they'll have an increased precedence presence in the area in the coming days as they conduct multiple scene examinations and work to establish a full picture of what has occurred. They're also giving support to the parent and child who are threatened by the man. Yeah, okay. What about residents? What, what are they saying about it? Well, we spoke to Matamata Piako Deputy Mayor James Thomas yesterday. He says it's a terrifying and horrible tragedy to happen to the community. He says it's a tragedy not only because someone has died, but for a family to be essentially held hostage. He thanked the police for their action, and he has described Piako as a tight-knit community and says they will come together to support the effective family on top of the victim support services provided by police. OK, thank you for that, Maya. That was our reporter, Maya Ingo. Well, the Emergency Management Minister, Mark Mitchell, is in Christchurch and joins us now. Good morning, Minister. Uh, good morning, Corin. How's it looking from what, what can you see at the moment, uh, looking a lot better than yesterday? Yeah, I, I, look, I think it is when you actually look at the hill itself. Um, we'll have an updated briefing uh, in the next hour. Um, the southerly they were expecting did come through at about 11 o'clock last night. Um, it dissipated about two, but it did push a bit more smoke over the city. Um, but look, it's just been an outstanding response. Um, you know, Fens responded very quickly. The mayor's here put them into a local state of emergency quickly. And um, from my viewpoint, it has just been, it's been outstanding. The, in terms of any updates overnight, you haven't had any reports through of any other damage to properties at all? I, no, so I had, I had updated reports through the night. There's no further damage to um, any property having been reported. And, of course, you, you would have seen that yesterday they actually um, allowed some residents to get back into their homes um, so there's, there's, one, there's one street still that, that, that they want to make sure that they've got secured, um, but fundamentally, you know, most residents are back in their homes. And in terms of uh, this operation, then, you would be hopeful that we're moving into a phase of, well, of almost dampening down. Well, yeah, but it's, it's not contained, um, and I don't want to underestimate the challenges still ahead um, for Fens. It's a very big, um, you know, uh, fire. It's over 600 hectares. Um, but they and they've obviously focused on. It's going to probably take weeks to actually get the fire completely out. Um, but I think what they've done is they've got control of it quickly. They've, they, when I say control, they haven't been able to contain it fully. But I think they've had much better control of it because of the quick response um, than, than they otherwise might have had. And it's but look, it's just been an outstanding response from everyone. All the first responders, police, very quick to get cordons in place. Um, you know, recognition in, uh, around many of the residents might have been impacted in the 2017 fire. So there's been partial care, public meetings, lots of communication. Um, you know, the, the, the um, helicopter pilots, I mean, diff- very difficult environment to operate in. We've had, they've had 14 of them in the air um, protecting property. So they've just done an outstanding job. Yeah, I mean, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a sad thing, isn't it, that we've, as a country, we've learned how to do this properly now, haven't we? We've had enough practice. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you're right, but it's, it's a real, reality for us as a country is that we will continue to be hit with these weather events. Um, it's just lucky that we've got a world-class, we've got world-class first responders that um, that mm. step up when we need them. Minister, can I ask you about the, the the terrain, the fuel? We get people from time to time saying, you know, why are there so many pine trees up there? What has been done? Are you confident? You flew over it. You be, are you confident yep. that the right strategies are in place for because it's the fuel that drives these fires, that it is yep. uh, in the right places and that there are enough fire breaks and that enough has been done on that issue? I think that I think that's a good conversation to have, but that is one that sits obviously for the local council and uh, the people of Christchurch themselves. 
Um, but um, yeah, so that, that's something that they probably, I'm sure, and after um, action review, um, they will be having a look at things like that. Why wouldn't you have a look at it too, as as a government? I mean, this is going to be a, a problem. This is a problem always, everywhere when there are fires, as to whether the land use is right. Yeah, well, again, that's um, that's something that um, is normally driven from a local perspective. Locals know best in terms of where they want to build houses and and have forests and things like that. So, um, and I'm sure that's something they'll be looking at and considering. In terms of a fire risk, I mean, we've got a fire risk now. It's been up in, I think, the northern part of New Zealand. This is an issue right across the country with the weather pattern that we have. It's sort of a turbocharged El Nino. Uh, you know, climate change issues seem to be driving those. Again, is a bigger response here required? Do we need to be better at trying to figure out how to cope with wildfires? We had floods last year. This year it seems to be wildfires. It's going to be a pattern that's ongoing. Yeah, we, well, we are in fire season, of course, because it is uh, we're in the middle of summer, so and things are dry. Um, but look, the, the reason why I'm here is number one to make sure that I'm here to support and also surge capability in here if it's required. Um, but also to have a, a broader view and um, uh, an approach to how we strengthen our national emergency management, um, and that takes in a whole lot of factors, um, including the environmental ones. Very good. Thank you for your time. That is uh, the Emergency Management Minister, Mark Mitchell. Wellington's Mayor Tori Farno says her council won't be binning better public transport, revitalising the city or climate initiatives to pay to fix the city's water pipes. Instead, Wellington City Council uh, is looking at congestion charging and increasing parking fees. One councillor is unhappy with the council response, Nicola Young. She joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. So, Yesterday, a big day, things such as reducing the hours at libraries and pools, that's, that idea has been scrapped. There was a public outcry about that, and there seems to now be a focus on parking in region, in sort of smaller areas of the city. Is this right? Um, yes, I would say the, that the councillors were not happy with the idea of swimming pool and library changes. So it wasn't just the public. The, all the councillors were united against those changes. So that's off the table. Okay. But you are now looking at this idea of parking fees in suburbs. So so what are we talking, sort of small suburban shopping centres? Yes. And it's really just another form of tax. I mean, what the council is doing is nibbling at little things and annoying Wellingtonians, but actually not not addressing the big things. So the big rocks, the really expensive things like the Golden Mile, which is largely very unpopular. Uh, the council's not prepared to make those big decisions. Well, well they are making changes there, though, aren't they? Aren't, isn't it uh, the, the Lampton Key aspect of that is not being considered? Uh, yeah, but but the, but the, it's still going to be you know hundred hundred million dollars I think going on the Golden Mile. I mean enormous amounts of money, and Wellington's going to become unaffordable. I'll give you an example. If you're paying four thousand dollars in rates now, in five years' time you'll be paying seven and a half thousand, and in ten years eleven and a half thousand plus a two percent sludge levy, and of course the regional council taxes. So or rates. So it's Wellington's going to become unaffordable because the council is a majority of councils won't kill any of the really big projects. So are you saying even with even if you were charged for parking at a suburban shopping centre to go and get your groceries or, or pop into the dairy, uh, and maybe even congestion charging, that won't raise enough rates? Oh, correct. Those are really very small amounts. So what's the logic then on the congestion charging? Is that because that's, we're told that's not meant to be a revenue-raising exercise. It's meant to be about 
stopping congestion. Well, yes. I mean, but it's just not true, is it? I mean, the thing is, I really like congestion charging. I lived in London when there was congestion charging. But you've got to give people alternatives, and we don't have an alternative. There are some parts of Wellington, which would be very difficult if you had congestion charging. You need to have a ring road or something like that, and that's going to be almost impossible in Wellington. So are you arguing don't have any of those, or don't have the parking increases, those sort of things, scrap the golden mile. How else would you look to save money? I mean, what about the town hall rebuild? Well, the town hall rebuild, um, we have to proceed with it. And the truth is, I mean, we are responsible for heritage in Wellington, and that's probably our number one heritage building. With hindsight, I think we would have approached it differently, but councillors at the time voted according to the options we were given. But some of the other big things, um, well, you know, this whole drive towards... um, you know, the the waste thing. Some of those things could be deferred. We don't have to do it all now. We we can just we can just take things slowly. But at the moment when people are under such what? enormous financial pressures. What waste things? Uh well we've got this whole thing about um zero waste and it's I've, I haven't got the numbers. But you know, there are other transport projects as well. The thing is it's it's driven by ideology uh, rather than trying to make Wellington affordable. That's my real concern. We've got really expensive projects and we need to put some of them on hold. I mean, another one, for example, the Karori Cycleway, you know, which is, if you know Wellington, you know, up the Aro uh, Valley and then up into Karori, because people in Karori don't want it, and yet we're ploughing ahead with it. So we're doing projects that people don't want um, because of ideology. And what about uh, in terms of the council itself, the size of the council? I mean, the, the operations of the council? Well, I have suggested we should have a sinking lid because... You know, we have, I think there's been a 27% increase in full-time equivalents since 2019. And uh, I do believe that we should be looking at a sinking lid so that people who are retiring or changing jobs aren't necessarily replaced. But that's had a very poor reception from my colleagues. And, of course, councillors, we only have one employee, which is the chief executive. So uh, it's up to the chief executive to make those decisions. But she can be given, of course, guidance. How do you know that people don't want these cycleways? I mean, it's part of... They do want better public transport options, don't they? They do want the ability. I mean, if you're going to start smashing them in cars with parking and congestion charging, then they need to have quality public transport or options, such as biking or cycling. Doesn't that make sense to continue to invest in those elements? Um, Well, certainly the public transport is incredibly important. There are a lot of people in Wellington, well, you know how hilly it is, for whom cycling and walking is not an option. For older people, people with young families, public transport does have to be improved. That is a a top priority. But, of course, Wellington City Council doesn't do that. That's a regional council issue, which is another thing is perhaps it's time for us to be looking. But, I mean, do you you have surveys and things to, to prove that people don't want this? Oh, yeah, the people are being surveyed all the time. I mean, there's a lot of resistance and, uh, from the community. And now, Karori is not in my ward, so I don't have the details of that, but I do know that there's a very strong opposition to it because they are, people are being surveyed and there is growing resistance to the Karori cycleway, for example. All right, thank you very much. That is uh, Wellington City Councillor Nicola Young. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has faced dual hearings this morning, one in Georgia and one in New York. Mr. Trump attended the hearing in Manhattan, which concerned a motion to dismiss the case brought against him related to hush money paid to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Trump says all charges against him are politically motivated. We're here for something that is not a crime. 
Nobody's ever seen anything like it. What it is, is election interference. It's being run by Joe Biden's White House. His top person was placed here in order to make sure everything goes right. This is a, this is a terrible time for our country. This is a real dark period for our country. His top person, Colangelo and some others, have been placed into the DA's office to make sure they do a good job of election interference. Well, the judge rejected the motion to throw out the charges, instead scheduling Mr Trump's first criminal trial to begin in March. Meanwhile, in Georgia, the defence is attempting to get the district attorney disqualified from the case concerning his attempts to overthrow the 2020 election. For the latest on all this, we're joined live by our correspondent in New York, William Denslow. Kia ora, good morning. Welcome to the programme. A lot going on here for Mr Trump. Firstly, the, the case in Manhattan, the judge rejected Trump's motion there. What did he say? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the day after Valentine's Day here in the US and Donald Trump has a date, but certainly not the type of date he'd be looking for. March 25th, as planned, as originally scheduled, will be the start of this trial. It will be the first time that a former president will face a criminal trial in the United States. The judge, Juan Merchan, has thrown out Donald Trump's legal team's efforts to toss the court. Donald Trump is set to face 34 charges. Now, this all relates to accusations that he falsified a business documents um, to cover up uh, alleged hush money payments to the porn star Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 presidential elections. We heard from the judge and why he uh, chose to move forward with the case. He said that these claims that he paid around $130,000 to conceal a sexual encounter uh, that helped influence the election and then allegedly falsified 34 business documents to cover it up. He says, and I quote, in the court's view, those are serious allegations. As we heard from the former president, he vehemently denies these allegations. He described it as election interference. He says it's a terrible time for our country. So Mr Trump chose to attend that case in person. Why do you think that was? And what did he and his legal team have to say about it afterwards? Well, many people have really speculated, considering the fact that this case, which falls slap bang in the middle of primary season in the U.S., where members of the Republican Party across the country are taking um, are going to uh, ballots for caucusing or primaries to make their choice on who they want to be the Republican representative to square off against the Democrats and likely Joe Biden uh, in November. So this really eats significantly into Donald Trump's ability uh, to campaign. And throughout uh, the last few months, he's been arguing that both this case and the uh, three other uh, criminal cases that he faces in the U.S. should be um, moved back considerably because this hurts his abilities to campaign. That is a major reason why he says uh, that this is part of the Democrats' bid uh, to rig the election in 2024. That was a sentiment that he once again echoed uh, leaving the court and his message that we're hearing on his Truth Social, his social media website as well, after uh, the judge's ruling. What about the case in Georgia? That seems a little more complicated. What's going on there? 
Yeah, absolutely. This is a hearing that's currently underway. It could go into Friday, potentially into next week as well. Essentially, Donald Trump's legal team uh, are claiming uh, misconduct against the prosecutor who is overseeing that state's election interference case against the former president and 18 other individuals. Essentially, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, is accused of having a relationship, an improper relationship with the special counsel whom she appointed. Now, she says that this had no ability, this had no impact over the case, it didn't, uh, it wasn't conflict of interest and the relationship was irrelevant. Um, but the message from um, Donald Trump's uh, legal team is that it very much was, that it's a conflict of interest and that is why uh, they want to see the district attorney in the state of Georgia removed from this case. And significantly, what we've heard uh, throughout proceedings this Thursday here in the U.S. is that a friend of Fannie Willis says that the relationship with uh, the special counsel, Nathan Wade, who she hired, that relationship began, according to this friend, um, this witness, was hired before their relationship began. Okay, a lot going on there. Thank you very much for the update. That is our correspondent in New York, William Denslow, uh, with uh, Former U.S. President Donald Trump facing two hearings today. Uh, the first has resulted in him being given a date for a criminal trial set to begin in March. That is. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 